Jesus has been walking through the temple grounds. It was the Tuesday right before his arrest on Thursday night and his murder on Friday morning. So it's just a couple days away. And on Tuesday, it was sort of the try to trump Jesus mentality where everybody kind of goes after him, uh, every religious leader. And then at the end of all of that, somewhere on Tuesday or Wednesday morning, the disciples, sort of trying to lighten the mood, I would assume, are actually just showing Jesus the beauty of the temple. I mean, the, the Mishnah, the, the sort of collection of Jewish traditions, would say that there are seven things beautiful in the world, uh, and of those seven things, six of, of the seven measures of beauty were handed to the temple. Uh, even the historians would say, if you haven't seen the temple, you've never really seen a beautiful building. And so they're kind of just trying to show them to Jesus. And Jesus looks at the temple and he, then he responds with is seeing things entirely different as they do. They see things as, as sort of a transcending, like everything's going to be the same as it is in this moment. And Jesus says, not one stone will be left upon another. And that freaks them out because they hadn't contemplated at any moment that the temple was going to be destroyed. Even when Jesus said, tear down this temple and raise it in three days, he was speaking of himself. And so ultimately they ask then, and they ask in chapter 24, verse 3, if you look at that just to get you there, because I don't want you to think I'm making any of this up, they ask three questions. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? And then the sign of the end of the age. Jesus then responds. That's the beginning of a sermon that's the second longest sermon in Jesus' recordings we have here. The first, of course, being the Sermon on the Mount, that is the Mount of Beatitudes in chapters 5 through 7. Now in chapters 24 and 25, we have the second Sermon on the Mount, a different mount. Now it's the Mount of Olives. The same mountain, by the way, Jesus will descend to his arrest. The same mount, by the way, that at the bottom would be Gethsemane, because that just means olive press. And it's kind of wise to put one of those at the bottom of a hill of olives. And it's also the place where Jesus will ascend from. We know that in the book of Acts, that he ascends from the Mount of Olives. Now, with all of that, Jesus now, it's Wednesday. Tomorrow, he's going to be arrested. Friday, he's going to be murdered. That's kind of where we're looking at. And Jesus has been bringing things to a conclusion. He doesn't ever just inform us for the purpose of simply information. Jesus will give us information, but for the purpose of transformation. It's supposed to shape, then, from that point on, our choices. And he tells us this in conclusion, even though the conclusion then will come with several parables afterwards. In chapter 24, verse 45, read along with me. He tells us then, Who then is a faithful and a wise servant whom his master made ruler over all of his household, or made over his household to give him food in due season? Verse 46 says, Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat, the word there is tupto, it means to thump uh, his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the word there, methyuho, means in essence those that are the wasters, and that, like the word methamphetamine, meth means to be intoxicated. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, and in an hour when he is not aware of, and he will cut him in two and appoint him, his portion with the hypocrites, a place you certainly don't want to be. Reading through Matthew chapter 23 will make that clear. And he tells us that there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is our pretext then to these particular stories. 
Jesus is going to give us these stories then in chapter 25. These things called parables. Para means beside. Balo is the Greek word for throw. That's easy to remember like you throw a ball. Para balo means then uh, to throw beside. And that's where we get the term parable from. A parable in the simplest sense is a circumstance or a story or a situation to help you understand another circumstance situation. That's kind of the idea. Jesus often will use what we call simile. Simile, like the word similar, is that one thing is like another. I think it was uh, Einstein who said that his truest theory of relativity is that if you sit uh, next to a beautiful woman, that it says that, that years seem like but moments, but if you sit on a hot stove, moments seem like years. That's the truest theory of relativity. And, and the whole idea of it is, is that when you compare those two things, you kind of get the idea here. Now, now what I'm saying in all of that is, is that Jesus is going to compare in this particular chapter three basic stories. Interesting. The first story is that of servants of the master towards his bride. He is servants, and what's going to be clear in this text is that they're really servants of the master because the bride herself will not be mentioned in any of this text. So the servants of the master of the bridegroom, that's our first of them. And then the second then will be the servants of the master in regards to his allotted goods. Interesting, because that's similar to what he actually said in these verses here uh, in chapter 24 when he talks about making him a rule over his household first to give him food over due season. That's his allotted goods. But then ultimately, he'll make him rule over all of his things. Although he's responsible for his people to give them food, and then ultimately over all of his stuff. Uh, and in the same way, we see the first of them, him being responsible for the most important person in his life, that's his bride. And then the second, if you will, then, in regards to his goods. <clears throat> and then finally, speaking them and putting them in contrast as he shep- separates the sheep and the goats. Now, the good news is we won't be going through all of that text, and I don't know if that's actually good news, but for the sake of clarity, we will go through the first parable because there's way too much in that particular text for us to kind of skate through. So this is the idea here. We're building on the foundation of to, being, to watch and be vigilant. The word in the Greek is the word gregorecho. We get the words Gregorian, for instance, from the Gregorian chants. Uh, the idea there is to be alert, to be vindicant, or I'm sorry, to be vigilant is the idea. And then he, and again, sort of points out the good servant and the evil servant that he just told us about in 24. Well, now he does that here in 25. He shows us in the ten servants of the master for his bride and then the three servants of the master for his allotted goods. So read along with me in chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will, shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps but took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in the vessels and their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise said, answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But the, he answered and he said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. 
Watch, therefore, his conclusion, just like he had told us prior. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. You pray with me, please. Lord, I want to thank you for the blessing, the privilege, the honor of being able to be in your word, expecting you to speak, expecting you to do profound things. So, Lord, we deem every second of this, I pray, have your way. Bless, 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 Lord, this time. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, God, that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do. And Lord, today, here in this room, Lord, captivate every one of us. May we be consumed in your word, Lord. May we be so clear on what it is you want to teach each one of us here, even in this time. God, I want to thank you. Thank you for the privilege of every second you give us here. Lord, bless it now. Teach, equip, exhort, challenge. Save. Do all you intend your word to do. But don't leave us alone now. And may we have so much fun as you redeem every second. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. No man, me or anyone else, is the authority that God's Word is. Now we start this story, compares now the issue and the necessity of being watchful. That's been the whole point of this. And he compares that now to these particular ten virgins. But he doesn't just tell us ten virgins, he tells us exactly what point in the situation that he compares it to. And that's when, according to verse 1, that they took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So, if we're unfamiliar with the culture, there's an awful lot we need to develop from the, first be- from the beginning, from the first couple of verses, because if we can really develop that, the rest of it really kind of unpacks on its own. So let's start with this. That uh, the situation of marriage, obviously 2,000 years ago and prior, it was very different, and even to, and to this day in the Middle East, is very different than it is in the Western world. In the Western world, the responsibility of marriage really falls into the hands of the prospective bride and groom, if we're going to be honest. Someone somewhere down the line, usually in a state of need, finds themselves in a place where they're really hungry for the purpose of having somebody else meet that need. And so they do whatever, is, whatever they're led to in whatever way or another to basically try to secure that particular position by finding somebody to fulfill it. Now, there's a danger in that from the beginning. Please hear me on this. And again, please don't just believe anything I say but search the scriptures. First of all, we are in a culture that tells us basically get the goods up front and if you have to pay for them. That's really kind of where we're at. And the devil works the same way. He works on credit. The idea is he'll give you the goods, but you'll spend the rest of your life paying for it. And we do the same thing. You know, if I sound like I'm part of an older generation here, prayerfully that should surprise you only because I look so young. Yeah, that shouldn't be so funny, Bruno. Anyways, the, uh, but please hear me in this. Scripture tells us that everything starts with a commitment, and it was the commitment that even affords you time, because inevitably that time will produce intimacy. And that's the way that Scripture ultimately sort of lays the groundwork. Now, on our Western world, we live in a very different way. We actually live with the idea that offer intimacy, and just if you get enough intimacy, you might get a little extra time out of it. And if you give enough time, you actually just may find yourself getting a commitment. But I've heard it said more than once, why buy the cow when the milk is for free? And, and the reason I say that is, 
is that we find ourselves in this place where we're accidental in almost everything we do, careless with the one thing God finds most important. God does not find church buildings most important or political movements. What God finds most important are people. Jesus did not die for anything but people. And when we start toying around with each other, we are in essence carelessly playing with the one thing that God finds most important. Consider that. So 2,000 years ago, the, hand, the situation was very different. It was actually handled primarily by the dad and a guy named Shosh Benin. Shosh Benin, in the simplest sense, means the friend of the bridegroom. And he is, in essence, the deal maker. You want a good Shosh Benin. Shosh Benin is the guy that's going to make sure that both parties are very happy. And he is the guy, ultimately, as the friend of the bridegroom, who will, in essence, announce the proposal, but he can't do the proposal himself. That has to be the groom. Ultimately, in between them is a cup. The same cup, for instance, that we will sort of, in essence, entertain when we have communion today. The cup, by the way, always speaks of a covenant, not a contract. A contract and a covenant are very different things. The Western world, focusing on the individual, focuses on contracts. What a contract is, is a promise of a service or some circumstance, but doesn't require a relationship, something in the future. But a covenant demands a relationship. God did not get into a contract with us. He got into a covenant with us. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. This is why, by the way, the rest of the world can look and say, well, why don't we have a little part of this whole marriage deal? Isn't it just another contract like others? But it isn't at all. So when a cup is offered, and I've learned this, that in that culture, the cup is only offered for two things. The cup is either offered, and, and I, both of them, they are a commitment of lifelong relationship. And the first is that of a husband and a wife, and the second is an adoption. We've had the blessing. I've had the blessing of both. Now in that, when he offers the cup, he offers his particular, uh, you know, his particular offer. In other words, it's usually protection, provision, pleasure, presence. That's what he pretty much offers. When she drinks of that cup, she is saying yes to his offer. It's that simple. If she refuses that cup, she refuses his offer. The family is shamed, and of course that becomes a very odd thing in a communal culture. When we drink of that cup today, the cup of communion, we are saying yes all over again. Not because we have to, but because we should. For over 27 years now, I wake up every day still saying I do to my wife. It isn't like, well, I said I do once. That's enough. Not like I have to actually have some form of ceremony and call in a guy. That would be a little awkward. But in my heart, I want to be just as married to her as the first day we were married and beyond. Actually, to be honest, probably even more so. Now, the reason I say that is, is that when we partake of that cup, we are saying again yes to his terms over and over again. That's why we proclaim his death until he comes when we, eat, when we drink of his cup. Because when we do that, that's his offer. That's his payment. So, case in point, I will, let's just pick on Dwayne and Natasha for a moment because you're a married couple and that kind of helps. So somewhere down the line, what's going to happen is, is there's been a deal worked out with, with Natasha's father and with Dwayne's dad and with the Shoshbini, his best friend. That's, by the way, the whole concept. That's the whole precursor of a best man today at a wedding ceremony. That's that guy. John the Baptist will speak of himself in that when he says, can the friend of the bridegroom mourn 
says, the pleasure is all mine. He must increase. I must decrease. As they're trying to tell John that Jesus is becoming more popular than him. And for that, he says, huzzah. So he offers her the cup. The only three people in the room at that particular moment are the groom-to-be, the potential bride-to-be, and the Shosh Benin. Ultimately, the friend of the bridegroom ultimately will be the Holy Spirit. We see that wooing and drawing and encouraging the wife to, be, to become the wife-to-be. The moment she drinks of that cup, they are officially betrothed. Betrothed means more than, again, than we have with engagement. Engagement, if you think about it, is in essence, almost, if we can be honest, is almost like a contract to, to the wedding day. I'm agreeing from this point that we're going to get married someday, which is why it's a little weird when you get engaged and then they're like, when's the wedding day? And you're like, I don't know. We're still working it out. And people are like, mm-hmm. There's some form of contract there. But since everything is built upon relationship in the Middle East, that's a whole lot more. You're actually to the point now where any act uh, of, that's away from that relationship is actually an act of betrayal and considered adultery. So, what happens for the next year? Well, he leaves. He doesn't actually get to see her again for another year. More than, more than often, it's about a year. Because what he does is he goes and builds a house on his father's estate. Interesting, because that's exactly what Jesus spoke about for what it's worth in John chapter 14, verse 3, when he says, I go prepare a place for you that where I am, then I will go when I'm done, I will finish, I will receive you to myself that, that where I am, you may be also. It's a very much the same wedding metaphor. He's going to build a house. Now tell me, who gets the rind of this deal? She, on the other hand, she goes through a year they call, well, ladies, you might want to know this word. Try this word. Tamruch. Try that word. Tamruch. Okay, but now say it, say it with a little bit of passion. I'll tell you why. Tamruch. Tamruch is the word beautification. And it comes all the way back, by the way, for what it's worth, to the book of Esther. In Esther chapter 2, verse 12, if you remember when the girls were being prepared to be presented to King Ahasuerus, it tells us this. Let each woman have their turn before King Ahasuerus after she's completed 12 months preparation, according to the regulations of the women, for thus were the days of the preparation apportioned, six months of oil and myrrh, and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. So gals, what you get is a, is a year at the spa. That's what you get. Back rubs, you know, the whole hair thing, facials. I mean, how rough is that? So get this. For that year, she's getting dolled up at the spa and he's working. He's building a house. Yeah, it's a man's world. Anyways. With that in mind, she is also allotted then a handful of girls that are considered noble, that are virgins in the community. Why would she be given virgins? Because nobody will be more excited about the wedding than virgins. So there are people and their responsibility is to guard her purity. See, I think that, that God knew something here that we kind of need to get an idea of, and that is that there's no one more beautiful than a girl in love. And the moment you start taking her to the spa and dolling her up all the time, that girl is going to be as pretty as that girl is going to get as far as the rest of the world is concerned. That's looking on the outside. But even that beam and that contentedness that comes with being in love is the very thing that God tells us is the benchmark of a godly woman. Contentedness is the one thing that God looks for in a woman that's maturing in Christ that doesn't need the things of the world and the entrappings that are following to actually find herself content. 
And that kind of person is a challenge and a danger to the enemy, but a beauty to the world to see and behold. And so there she is. She is in a place where everyone's going to go, Whoa, who that? So she has these virgins that are with her. So why ten? I mean, that's actually kind of an important thing because to be legal, ten is a really, really important number. And I'm not trying to get fancy with any of this, but if we were, we would go back to Genesis 18. And Genesis 18, Abraham is actually at a place called Mamre. And Mamre, for what it's worth, is four kilometers north of Hebron, a place that is even called Hebron to this day. While he's there, he sees these men that come, three of them. Uh, one happens to be the Lord, two happen to be angels. That becomes clear in the rest of the text. And he showing traditional Middle Eastern hospitality, says, please come and, and cool yourself under the heat, uh, under, the, under my tree in the, in the heat of the day, and let me prepare you a decent lunch. And they're like, yeah, okay, that sounds like a good idea. And so he goes, and by the way, for what it's worth, he does make a, a calf, that is a cow, if you're aware of, and milk and butter. So that tells me that for those who have traditional sort of Jewish standards, he ate milk and meat, actually even from the same animal, but for what it's worth. And so they eat. And ultimately, as they eat, there's this conversation between these three men that say, well, should we even let Abraham in on what's going on? Now, first of all, they reinforce the promise God gave them all the way back in Genesis 12 when he said, you're going to have a child. Sarah laughs. And they're like, why did she laugh? You know, and she's like, from behind the tent somewhere, she's like, I wasn't laughing. You know, and that's, of course, a fun scene to watch. But then after that, they have this conversation. Should we really let Abraham know what we're doing? And you can imagine Abraham's like, oh, well, now that you said that, I hope so. Like, well, we're going to go and check out Sodom and Gomorrah. It's getting a real bad rap right now. In heaven times, it's on the front page, and it's pretty clear at this point. We're going to go and check it out for ourselves. And if, man, if, this, if it doesn't add up, this, this is going down. We're going to destroy it. And, and Abraham starts to get into this bargain with God, this haggling. He says, well, let me ask you something hypothetically. There were 50 righteous people. And what he's finding out here is, what is it going to take to keep a nation from being destroyed? I think that that's, by the way, a very important note for us here. How about 50 people? If there were 50 guys in this city that were righteous, would you not destroy this city? I was like, yeah, I wouldn't do it for 50. And he goes, well, please don't let me be uh, an irritation to you. But what about 45? would 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 you do it for 45? It's like, no, no, I'd still keep the, I'd still keep the, the city. He's like, uh, how about 40? No. Uh, well, please, don't let me belabor you anymore, but 30? No, 30 is okay. 20? 10? And at 10, God's like, we're done. We're going to go now. Because of that, the Jewish people view this number 10 as a very important number for sort of legal trainings. The idea that if there were 10 righteous men, then a city would be safe. That's, they're convinced because they see that here from Genesis 18. So 10, by the way, becomes a very important thing for legal matters. They have to call 10 elders, for instance, to have sort of legal documents become legal. It also is that you can't have a synagogue in a community without ten righteous men. They call that, for what it's worth, a minion. So, you know, it's not just a little yellow guy that serves group. I mean, a minion actually was something. You couldn't even have Passover without ten godly men, was the idea. So this idea of sort of ten was really important. Here, what we find is that this marriage is a legal marriage. Now, that doesn't mean it's not a religious marriage. What that means is it is completely endorsed by the entirety of its neighborhood. 
Now, ultimately what happens is, is that the man goes and builds his house, and then ultimately he's going to go back and get his girl. Now, I'm doing this, I'm really giving you a very abridged version because I don't want to lose the forest and the tree here. But please hear me. It all depends on how much he's excited about, how excited for his bride-to-be he is for when he comes back. I mean, let's face it, if the guy finishes the house and he's really not that excited about getting his girl, he might take a couple days and kick back and take a look at the place, make sure the cable's working, check his internet, that kind of thing, and then somewhere down the line head down there. But if the guy's really excited about getting his girl, he's going to go the moment he's done. And I love this because though the girl is there getting herself all dolled up, and by the way, surrounded by girls to guard her purity, and also to help invest. These girls, in essence, were also, if you will, they're the, your Manny Petty girls. They're the ones who are serving you in this process. Now, you know that you're going to be doing this for at least a year, is more than likely, unless the guy's like a master builder. And so with all of that in mind, you don't know when the guy's coming back. You just know this. When he's done, he's coming. The fact that in the story it tells us he shows up at midnight, that tells me that the guy is really excited about getting his girl, that he really doesn't mind coming at night to do so. Now, ultimately, what will happen is, is that once the guy is, is announced, what happens is the trumpets are blown at the city gates. As the uh, trumpets are blown at the city gates, the elders of the city rise with torches. They always have them by their houses so they can lead the groom into the city. Then the virgins, the ones who are caring for the bride, would actually be responsible for meeting him from that point and taking him specifically to the house of the girl. So the elders come first, then come the, the, the virgins, and then after that, he comes riding on his litter. Now today that would be a limo, but in those days it was this big box carried on the shoulders of men. I'm sure you've seen it in some form of movie or illustration. But the whole idea of it was is that the man is honored. But the best part about it is he shows up to, at the door. The father takes his court of government, places it upon the shoulder of the, of the man that's the groom with the idea she's your governing now. She's your responsibility. And then with that, he takes her and pulls her into that litter so that everybody can see this is my girl. This is her. And at that point, then they go and they head to the, merit, to the wedding ceremony. Now, interesting, because if you're familiar with the New Testament, you might be familiar with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, where it tells us, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet call of God. And after that, we who are, first says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Well, who are they? They're the elders of the city. They're the ones that validate that this is a legal marriage. Then, we who are alive and still remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Wait a minute, if we're caught up together with them, well, then who are we in the story? We're the bride. To be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Do those words encourage you? They encourage me. So this is what we get in our story. The things that we don't know that everyone there already knew that we have to kind of fill in on. Virgins were servants. But notice, again, we never read the bride mentioned in the story, just bridegroom. They are servants of the bridegroom, but they serve the bride. Did you get that? And that is really important. Let me tell you, these last three years, that's never been more important than it has for us than now. In the last three years, you're probably aware there's been a lot of challenges, the government with visas and so forth, and just there was... 
It was a fight to the nail to stay in this country. And what we kept saying is, we are going to let this church know they're worth it. We are going to let these Christians know that it's worth every cent that we have to stay here. But crazy as it was, when the dust cleared, most of them were gone. And you can imagine how strange that was for us. Because we just fought with every breath we had to stay in this country, just to serve. And then it was like, where did they all go? And somewhere down the line, the Lord sits you down and tells you a verse like this. And he goes, let me remind you, you only serve the bride because you serve me. And I'm still your master. Because I'm your master, you serve me. And you'll bless the bride to do that. Boy, did I need that. In our story here, he says there are going to be these ten virgins that are serving the master by serving the bride. And each of them has a lamp. I'd like you to, sh- I'd like you to see this. This is a traditional oil lamp. Now, this is a replica. I actually have some two, actually have a couple 2,500-year-old lamps, but they're all packed away right now as we move on Friday. Uh, and uh, don't worry, from one place in line into another. But you can see they're not large. They're actually rather small. By the way, do you know what the wick is normally made of? Old pieces of clothing. Talk about recycling. We recycled everything. So, uh, and the oil was normally olive oil. The first press of olive oil was given to the priests and to the kings for anointing and for the oil in the lampstand of the temple. Then every time you crushed it, it became a little bit more dirty with other parts and resin of the olive. And each part of that then became to the, and was used for other things. You know, ultimately, then it was used for medicine and then it was used for cooking and so forth. And ultimately, at the bottom, even that stuff was used, but it was used for lighting oil like this. It was used as well for medicine and it was used for, I mean, for a lot of, it had a lot of different purposes is the point of it, even the mash itself. So why wouldn't you have a big lamp? Why wouldn't you have a really, really big lamp that you would need in your house? Because you have this bowl of flammable liquid that by God's grace at the moment, the only thing on fire is this little thing out the front of it. What would happen the moment that your six-year-old knocks that thing over and you've got this giant vat of flammable liquid, what did you just do? You set your whole house on fire. So you kept lamps small. That way they were no great threat. Probably familiar, maybe you're not, that the great Chicago fire back in the early 1900s traditionally was that a cow kicked over a kerosene lamp in a, in a uh, barn. Set the whole city of Chicago on fire, by the way. Now, with that in mind, the reason I say that is, is needless to say, if you have a lamp this size, you're going to have to come with oil. And you can't, you're not going to carry it in this. You have to have a vessel to carry the oil in. Especially if you know that you're going to be there for the tambruch, the season of beautification, and you know it's going to be about a year. I mean, imagine what it would be like to be one of those virgin girls serving a girl knowing someday that's going to be you. And how cool that would be to sort of foster that whole dream and encourage that whole thing. Now, with that in mind, we have something like this. And what we read is that there are ten, although there are ten virgins, we read that five and five are they're sort of they're sort of delineated by two things. We read that some of them are wise and some of them are foolish. Do you see that, by the way, there in verse 2? Now, 
for what it's worth, there are two traditional Greek words, and, and forgive me for being a little bit sort of technical, but it's important to know. There are two basic Greek words, one for wise and one for foolish. The word for wise is the word Sophia. In fact, like the name Sophia means wise, like goddess of wisdom for the Greeks. On the other side of it, the word for fool is the word moros. We get the word moron from it. So usually, you know, in America, the second year in high school, they're called sophomores. Literally, what that means is they're wise fools. It's kind of the idea. Sophos moros. But the idea of calling someone a moron today may actually be fairly close to the idea here. And that's a person that it isn't necessarily that they lack the capacity. There's another word for a person that's just, if you'll pardon me for saying, is just stupid. But it's for a word for a person who doesn't engage their mind. A person who doesn't use what they've been given. But it's sort of like their head is actually used more as a battering ram than actually something to protect the God-given gift of their brains inside. That's the word he uses here for a fool, moron, moros. But what I find interesting is that he doesn't use the word Sophia for the word wise, which usually, by the way, is a person that you just know is really gifted at making good choices. That would be the idea. Someone that takes a lot of knowledge and properly applies it to action. That's wisdom in the sense of a Sophia. But the word that's usually used here is the word phronemos. And phronemas, like frain, like schizophren, means to think. And I like this because the word he uses here for wise actually in a simplest sense means conscientious, thoughtful. That's the idea. So what you really have here is you have somebody that's kind of like, dope dope do I don't really need to use my brain. And on the other hand is a person that's actually really being thoughtful, conscientious. They're using their brain. In essence, again, He's not saying that five of these poor souls were just born without really any intellectual agility. What he says is they may have all been at the same IQ, but five of them were acting like it. Now, what he tells us that separates them in their behavior is actually not their lamps. They all have lamps. And initially they appear all to have oil in them. (coughs) But what five of them have that the other five don't is somehow the consciousness of a future. Have you noticed? Five of them are carpe diem girls. Live for the day. Seize the day. Hey, light your thing. Light it and hold it. Hold your, hold your lighter in the air, everyone. But there's no plan for tomorrow. There's no plan for the long haul. So for the moment, burn all you want, man. What difference does it make? Well, it makes a lot of difference if what you're doing is actually serving the Master. If you're living for yourself and you run out tomorrow and then you go, well, it's hard times and maybe that's your whole life, well, then maybe you kind of understand. I remind you, those are the people God calls morons here. Pardon me for saying, it's what he says. But he says that all of them have lamps and those lamps all appear to have oil in them initially because five of them, they're going to say our lamps are going out. But he says, but the other five really, in essence, were in it for the long haul. Now, don't miss this because Jesus really gets about this in the Gospel of Luke. He says, which one of you builds a tower, but first doesn't sit down and actually ask yourself, what's it really going to take to build this tower? Because otherwise what happens is you get halfway through this thing, and then you actually run out of funds, and then what you have is a stump for everyone to walk by and go, hey, stumpy. Because clearly everybody knows at that point you planned to build a tower and you didn't finish it. Because in one king, in his own right mind, when he knows he has to go to war, 
doesn't sit down and look at his 10,000 guys and go, can we really go to war against those 20,000? And he goes, if he doesn't, if he's not convinced he's going to win this battle, I think he's going to go over there and ask for peace. And what he says in this is, is that, you know, there's certain things you have to be spontaneous about. But when it comes to Christianity, let me give you two words to consider. The word concerted and the word coincidental. The word coincidental means I'm coincidentally Christian. You know, somewhere down the line, maybe if I'm around the right people, you might find a hallelujah to find out fall out of my mouth. You won't find me reading my Bible. You won't find me praying, oh, unless other people are praying, and that's kind of what we're doing. I'm coincidentally Christian. I'm not really conscientious about my... I'm not intentional with my Christianity. What I really am is just kind of, well, when we're in the culture, we do the culture thing. I have no confidence in a coincidental Christian. They're like these five girls. They have their lamps and they're lit for a bit here. But they have no intention of really planning for the future where they know sooner or later this isn't about just being lit for the moment. This is we serve the groom and the groom knows we're going to need to be ready when he comes. But a person who is 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 concertedly Christian means that their brain is wrapped into the idea of being a Christian. Let me say it this way. No one should be coincidentally married either. It's like, oh, by the way, oh, oh, my goodness. You know, it's like all of a sudden you're looking at your watch and you're going, oh, my goodness. It's, I, I haven't seen, I haven't called my wife in days. I should probably give her a call. That doesn't sound like a good marriage. Oh, well, you know, I'm sorry, I forgot about you. I try, every day I try to do something that specifically reminds my wife, not to think of me, don't worry about that, but actually to, to let her know that when I'm not with her, I'm thinking of her. Traditionally, I try to text her somewhere while I'm on, a, on some form of transportation before I go underground. I says, hey, I'm praying this specific thing for you today. As I was asking the Lord what to pray for, this is what he brought to my heart for you today. Sometimes it's just I'm at a store, and if I'm at a store, it's almost impossible for me not to text my wife and say, hey, do you need anything? Or I'm near a Starbucks. Would you like a mocha? That just seems, that's just kind of the way I live because I want my wife to know that I'm not coincidentally married, concertedly. It's on my mind, and it is in my intentions. And let me ask you something. Are you coincidentally Christian today? Or are you concertedly? Because soon we'll go to the table of the Lord. Are we living our life kind of like, well, it's all going to work out, so what's really the difference? But there's no intentional investment in your relationship with God. Or are you in a place where you're like, you know what? I want to wake up in the middle of the night and pray, not because I feel like I can tick that box when we're done, because I just want to pray. I just want to talk and be like David that says, on my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I will sing under the shadow of your wing. I love that about David. You know what the saddest part to me is? Not the person who's never been concertedly Christian, but the person who used to be. The person who somewhere down the line really loved being, putting Jesus first. But here's the danger. 
when you're in a Christian culture where the only cool thing to do is to put Jesus first, isn't exactly still being a concerted Christian. It's actually just being a convenient one. In the culture we live here, there's nothing popular about being a full-on Christian. Let's be honest. I can't think of a culture that I've been in where you have to be more intentional in your pursuit with Christ than in a place like this. Because you're not going to actually accidentally pick up hallelujahs and in little verses and encouragements when you're walking down the street. What you are going to do is be assaulted in your workplace. You're going to be assaulted when you walk down the street. I know when you turn on the telly, because let's be honest, the stuff that's there isn't even mildly anti-Christian. It is full-blown assault on your faith now. And if we want to be casual about it, we're going to find ourselves waking up one day and going, what the heck happened to me? I used to be so excited about the Lord. Well, read this text with me. We can develop the issue of oil from Zechariah 4 and Zechariah 12, Acts 10, Exodus 25. But we get the idea. And we understand the idea of the lamp as well. But listen to this in the simplest sense on this. The kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who serve the master by serving the bride. Their responsibility ultimately is to guard the bride's purity, to invest in the bride to make her as beautiful as possible. And then ultimately light the way so that when the king shows up, when the, bro- when the groom shows up, they can say this way, I know her well, I know her well. We haven't just gone for visits. I'm planted in this thing. But five of these girls who were thoughtless were excited about the idea of being a virgin here, excited about the idea of being such a servant during a particular girl's tamruch, but they forgot they were serving the master. Instead, they just basically got to sit around eat bonbons and watch girl films. Well, you know, they, they, they binged on Gilmer Girls, but they really didn't spend any time focusing on the coming groom, the master. It tells us in verse 5 that the bridegroom was delayed. Now, the word delayed there does not mean that he got stuck on a train. The word there for what it's worth is the word chronizo. We got the word chronicle from it, or chronic. Uh, we also get, in other words, that something goes throughout time, is the idea of that. A chronometer is your watch. Chron means time. In the simplest sense, what had happened here is that the bridegroom took time. And let me warn you, one of the greatest tests of your faith will be time. You know this. We have these crisis moments where in the clutch, we're either going to choke or we're going to prevail. But really, truth be told, the majority of our faith will be displayed in time. When you know God's promised something, but at the moment you're just not seeing it, and are you going to live in the confidence it's going to come to pass or not? Having said that, he's taking his time. Now, he's not taking his time like he's in no hurry. I know he's in a hurry because by the time he's done with the house, he's going to show up at midnight, which tells us he is not wasting a moment to get to her. But it's taking time. What that tells us is he really wants the house done right. Here's the crazy part. Though he is gone for her, she cannot see him. She, she has never left his heart. And in everything he's building, every room he's putting together, he's constructing with the mindset that this is going to be a house for me and her. 
So everything reflects that. He's never stopped thinking about her, even though at the moment she can't see him like she wants to. So, while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered. Notice the word all. All tells us, by the way, that all ten of the virgins, both wise and foolish, all slept. But he doesn't just say that they slept. Notice it says they all slumbered and slept. Do you see that there? That's two different things. Slumbered, by the way, for the West, nustazo. Nustazo means, in essence, to nod off. I've been looking around. I think none of you have been nustazoing today, if you will, nodding off. But then there's the word casiuojo. And casiuojo, the word here that's for slept, means, in essence, to comfortably sleep. You know, there's that place where, and you watch it on trains, right? You watch the guy and you kind of know that this is a particular person that really is afraid to miss their stop. So they're kind of, but they're fighting it and they kind of really don't want to sleep. But when they hear kind of some announcement, they kind of perk up for a second to make sure that they know where they're at. Everyone's all like, "Uh and they're looking, okay, good, we're at Archway, Uh, you know, or whatever. But there's, there's no deep sleep in that they're in uncomfortable sleep. They're basically trying to meet both needs. They're trying to let the body rest for a moment, but they're really not going to let the body rest as much as it wants to because on the other side of but they have a place to be. But then you watch that particular guy every once in a while. Usually he's in the front or the back carriage, right? And he's in the far corner. And that guy's gone for the count. That guy's probably on the northern line. He's going to go down to Morden. Then he's going to go up to Edgware. Then he's going to go down to Morden again. And then he's going to go up to High Barnet. Then he's going to go back down again. The guy got himself basically a five-pound hotel for the night. And you know that. And you know that because drools off the side of his face. His whole body now has somehow like lost its bone structure and it's melded into the side of the building, you know, of the, of the carriage. And now the guy's like a boneless chicken. He just you like that. You know, and it's like, and you watch that particular thing, and they're very different people, obviously. I mean, that, and usually I'm the, I'm the nut. I'm the guy on the bus or whatever that will go, hey, excuse me, what's, what's your stop? Because if your stop's before mine, I'll nudge you when it's time. Now, 99% of the time they say thank you. Every once in a while they look and like, who do you think you are? I'm like, I'm just trying to be nice, you know. You know? But when you watch, usually when it's somebody that really wants to get somewhere, they're actually quite thankful. You know, well, I guess in that case. But when you watch the guy, the guy that's kind of out in the corner at this point, you know, and he's actually making sounds like the brakes aren't working on the train. Well, obviously that person, you try to, you, you kick him, you could throw something at him, and it's not going to matter. And what he tells us is that somewhere down the line, because it's taken time, we started nodding. That's really the bottom of it. We start with this kind of, well, in other words, we really didn't want to surrender to the sleep. We kind of went, well, it could be now, it could be now. And that could be the walk with us, too. It could be like somewhere down the line, when you first started reading Scripture, you knew the Lord could come at any moment. And you thought, yeah, that's exciting. But then you start living more life for Christ. And you start living more life. And sooner or later, you start nodding on this issue of being watchful. Because that's Jesus' conclusion to this parable. Then, you have a choice to make. At that moment, do you pull over? Do you get an energy drink? Do you start doing circles? Do you slap yourself in the face? Or do you just go, forget it, I'll surrender to the sleep? What he tells us is when the groom came back, they were all not just nodding, they were comfortably asleep by this point. They were all the guy in the corner. And he came in midnight, literally the middle of the night, not just, as we might say, 12 you know, a.m. So it says then, as they slumbered, a cry was heard in the middle of the night. And by the way, that's important because of guess, that's, again, 
That's that guy that calls the people. The trumpet's blown. The crier cries his cry that calls all the people to let them know why the, the horn's been blown in the first place. And we get ready for their particular event, which is this wedding. Now, while all of that's happening, we, could, we throw ourselves way out of sleep now. Egero, we awake. That's the word here. Verse 7 says, The virgins arose, trimmed their lamps. Now we've got this problem. Because as they trimmed their lamps, and I remind you, none of them thought he was coming at this moment. But only five were ready. So five look. It's the middle of the night, and they look, and they're like, hey, we don't have any, la- we don't have any light. We are now, think about it, we are now ill-equipped for the responsibility of being the light we're supposed to be to get the groom to the bride. We're not ready. Help us out. And what the five wise, and I remind you, for now, the, guys, the ones that are thinking are saying, because their intentional is, hey, you know what, this is, mine's for me. I, it's not like I don't care, so I don't share. That's not it here. It's like, like, I don't have enough to share. What I have is specifically for me. That's all I have allotted at this point. You really need to go and get your own. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think there are any up-all-night, 24-hour extra virgin oil stores happening somewhere in this story? where the girls could sort of pop off somewhere at sort of a 24-hour Tesco and get their oil. I'm fairly likely to assume since the word's agora, which is the word for market, the market's not open all night. Why would a market not be open all night? For the same reason we don't keep them open all night here. Because people rob at night and they get away in the darkness. Which means that they actually at that point can't go to the store until the next morning. So imagine they're sort of sitting at the stall waiting for the guy to show up because most of the goras, by the way, were very similar like what you might find in something like Smithfield or Spitalfields or Whitechapel. You know, it's kind of where everyone sort of sets up their booth. So that's what they're kind of waiting for. Camden, here we see that. So someone's like, oh, i got to get oil, i got to get oil. It may have been several hours before they could get it. But when they finally come back, by that point the door's already shut. And by that point, the five that were ready for the master were in there with him, enjoying the wedding. But let me tell you the most frightening part about all of this, and it's the end of the story. Because there's a knock, and they say, Lord, Lord. Now Jesus told us back in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of heaven, or enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. And here they are crying, Lord, Lord. He would say in that next verse, you know, there are going to be those that have said, haven't we not prophesied your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And do you remember what Jesus says his response would be in Matthew 7? I never knew you. Look at this verse with me. Verse 12. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. But here's the scary part to me. Many of you are familiar that there are two basic Greek words for to know. There's the word haidol, which means, in essence, to perceive. You've been taught white, this color is white, this color is brown, or whatever, this is a pew. That's information that you've sort of been handed. You have knowledge. And there's the word gnosko, and gnosko means, in the simplest sense, to know by experience. The idea, by the way, that chances are that when it comes to Shemar and Bruno, they have a lot of experiences together, so they have a great deal of knowledge of each other, because it isn't just that they've checked each other's stats. They could probably tell you, you know, 
that they were, you know, what, how they would handle a certain circumstance. And for whatever reason right now, I kind of get this idea of the two of you playing the role in psych, you know, and watching the two of you interact with each other. And because you kind of know where the guys are going to go with each other, because you have that knowledge, that corporate knowledge that comes from corporate experience. But here's the scary thing. When the master answers the door, the word is idle. It's not even Gnosko. It isn't even, you know, we really just don't have enough experience together. It's as if he opened the door and he looks and he goes, have we met? Could you imagine? See, five of those people, the bride knew. The bride seemed to know rather well. But the groom didn't. And I remind you, the groom was the employer. And Jesus told us back in the last chapter, you need to be a watchful servant, a good and faithful servant. Don't be like one of those evil servants that says, my master is delaying his coming. Because he's delaying his coming, they start beating on the other servants and then start to eat and drink with the drunkards. Because I tell you, the master will come at a time when they're not expecting. And I remind you, he's, not deal- he's dealing with servants here. And he says he's going to come at a time when they're not expecting. He's going to cut them in two. Throw them outside where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. I never want to be at that place where I could stare in the face of Jesus and have Jesus look blankly at me and go, we even know each other. You know the crazy part is? I get to serve the bride. I mean, I'm here every Sunday. We're here on, on Tuesdays. We're here throughout the week serving. And you know this, I would meet with you, pray with you. We'd go through the word. And that's still not it. Because in the end of it all, someone on the line he says, look, it's so therefore, I want you to watch. Don't forget... What this is really about is not just being nice to people and getting friends. What this is about is that there is a master who's coming back. He's preparing a place for us. And he's gonna, when he's done, he's going to come and receive us to himself, that there where he is, we may be also. And I'm here to let you know that he's coming. And even if he doesn't come at this moment, he's coming. And what happens if, we, if we're like, well, he's not probably going to come in our lifetime. Well, then what happens is you stop watching for him. And when you stop watching for him, you get fat and lazy and careless and uninvolved and you start living for the day instead of living for the hope of the tomorrow. And what you have in the end is you have these characters. You have the five foolish virgins who will never be in the wedding. And then, and those are the bridesmaids, you get that? And then, by the next story you'll see, you'll have a guy that God calls wicked and lazy because he was given something by his master who then went out. And he's like, difference does it make? He's not coming back anytime soon. See, whether the Lord comes in our lifetime or not is irrespective to the point that we should live as if he is. Although I'm rather confident he will. Because the moment we think he isn't, well, let me end with this and then we'll go to prayer. Truth be told, When you know someone's coming, it all depends on your relationship with him and how you respond. If he's your boss, you should look busy. If he's an authority figure, you should look like you're behaving. But if it's someone you love, you get your arms ready. And you get excited. Not fearful. Joyful. Do you know this God this way? He didn't have to present himself 
as a groom, but he did. Because I remind you, this isn't about a contract. This is about a covenant. My God wants you to know today that as we go to prepare for the table of the Lord, He really wants us to get serious about it. Let me ask you, are there some of you that this used to be really bright? This used to be really, I mean, this was, you were careful to be moved because you were going to spill it. But you just kind of somewhere got sedentary because in the world around us, that's what we learn is learn how to get comfortable and sedentary. But you know that God's got so much more. Beloved, I really, really, really want to be the person like the virgin that knows both sides so well. Knows the master so well that I can't wait to see him. But knows the bride so well I'm so blessed to be a part of. As we go to prayer, I want to pray that today we would recommit. That we recommit our lives in purity to God in a world around us that isn't going to be in any way troubled by you if you're coincidentally Christian. But the moment you're concerted, they're going to actually be concerned. Because it tells us whoever desires to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. But is it worth it? Hear me. We've been on. We've been packing a lot lately. It's almost unbelievable how much stuff we have. I mean, my wife put it best. I think she says she we feel like she feels like a goldfish, you know, that grows to the size of its bowl. We have a big house at the moment, so that we're a big goldfish. But now we're kind of dumping stuff off. If you're not careful, you may get a couch if you or whatever if you're around us long enough. But the but you get tired of it, man. You know, it's like you're just muddling through stuff and trying to figure out what to sort of shindle off and what not to. And somewhere down the line, you forget. And I just I was telling my wife, I feel like we just need to get back to the, just go walk by the house one more time or something that we're going to move to. Just to be inspired again, to be reminded why we're doing what we're doing. Just to get that vision again of what's in front of us. And I feel like that's what church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be the place where you're living life, but somewhere down the line, it's like you know that you want to serve the Lord and you want to make it concerted. But where we can kind of lay heaven in front of us again and go, oh yeah, okay, I get it. This is all worth it. Let me say this as we pray. My Lord came for me the first time by redeeming me at the cross, sent Jesus. He was sent to die on the cross to pay for my sins. And now that my price has been paid and I've been purchased by his blood, I've said yes. That's all that he's asked me to do is to, to claim him as Lord and Savior and accept the offer of his sacrifice on my behalf. Death, literal death, burial, resurrection. On the third day, just as scripture promised. Have you said that? Have you done that? Because he's coming for his own. And his own are those who have said yes. The cup is offered to you. And if you have said yes, my prayer is today that we'd start watching and living expectant of a Savior who is coming for his own. Will you pray with me? God in heaven, I want to thank you for this beautiful text. I want to thank you, Lord, for the way you've gone before us. I want to thank you, Lord, for the way your Holy Spirit has spoken to us. And I confess to you, Lord, that there are some times, Lord, we can get so caught up in the day that we carpe diem our whole walk. 
and we become more, well, really, we become much more coincidental in our Christianity than we are concerted. And I recognize today you have so much more for us. Well, Lord, we're not just to be tossed about by the waves of foolish men's doctrines and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting and the wiles of the enemy, but rather, Lord, that we would grow to become firm in you, rooted in love, established in, Lord, with Jesus, you as you as our foundation. And that we are to live lives, even today, Lord, that are hungry for your return, to see you face to face. So I pray today, Lord, for every one of us, myself included, that as we prepare now for your table, Lord, that you would in this time revolutionize our hearts. For those whose fires were once sparked, Lord Jesus, you spoke about John the Baptist and said he was a burning lamp and then there were those around him that chose for a season to enjoy and bask in that light. And Lord, I know that the only reason his light went out was because he was killed. And Lord, I don't want my light ever to be anything but bright, but not under a bushel. You've called us the light of the world. And we live so. So Lord, I pray right now for anyone who's been uh, just easing up. And the things of the world have become now traps. And we're so impure, we can't even concept the idea. We can't even conceive the idea of purity anymore. And our ears are filthy, and our mind is filthy, and our eyes are filthy. We're not just talking about the things we can't avoid. We're talking about the fact that we've been so careless that we're allowing ourselves to drift down this, this sewage pipe into places, Lord, that we should never go. Pray your Holy Spirit would convict us of that even today, even now. Then we would step it up and say, Lord, I'm going to go against this grain. I'm going to fight against this flow. And I'm going to walk with you. Intentionally, concertedly walk with you. And as I do, I know that you're coming and I want you to find me faithful and I want you to find me filled in you. I want you to find me, Lord, in that place where I am watchful and excited for your return with arms open wide. And I recognize that if you come at a time when we wouldn't expect, clearly that couldn't be the tribulation because that would be the signs themselves would alert the, the virgins that, that clearly... You're on your way. But rather in a time that seems to be quiet, at a time where it seems like your people are falling asleep, God, wake us up and ignite us to do your will. Wake us up, Lord, with a hunger to recognize this isn't a contract, this is a covenant, and we are to develop that relationship. And here in this room, as eyes are closed, heads are bowed, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'd like to pray a prayer in at the end. If you want to receive that, just simply say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I am a sinner. I'm guilty before you, but I believe you paid for my guilt on the cross of your only begotten son, Jesus the Christ, who died for me so that all my sin could be vanquished. And just like Scripture promised, was buried and rose again on the third day to become the living Lord of my life. So I say, yes, have me now. Take me. 
Shape me. Mold me. I am yours. And develop me, Lord, to make me that servant you ordained me to be. I hand myself to you now. In Jesus, in your name. Amen. God, you've heard our prayers today. Now cement those convictions and let us live it out, I pray. In Jesus' name.